Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 27. While you're turning there, um, we had our annual denominational gathering this last week. My favorite line that I heard the entire time was a quote from Harry Reader. Harry Reader went to be with the Lord just recently as my uh, childhood pastor, but uh, he, his quote was, reading your Bible on a screen is like kissing your wife through the screen door. And I just thought that was the funniest thing. Uh, somebody was quoting him at one of the lunches, reading your Bible on your phone is like kissing your wife through the screen door. And it just made me laugh. Not exactly sure what it means, but it's still a funny line. All right, Isaiah 27. In that day, the Lord with his heart and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it day and night. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. He has struck them as he struck those who struck them. Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile, you contend with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin, when he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces. No asherim or incense altars will remain standing, for the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness." There the calf grazes, there it lies down and strips its branches. When its boughs are dry, they're broken. Women come and make a fire of them, for this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. In that day, the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you shall be gleaned one by one. O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, you've spoken to us in your word. Would you please give life and light to our hearts that we would understand and believe? We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. General Assembly is our annual gathering, uh, our annual business meeting as a denomination, and often it's a lively time where we debate serious and weighty matters of the church. Uh, Oftentimes, if you've been at this church for any lengthy period of time, I tend to speak of it in doom and gloom terms before uh, before we go. This year's business was a little bit different, where it was largely technical and not entirely interesting, if I'm going to be honest. Uh, Many hours of... um, a weighty debate on things that maybe I wouldn't have given quite so much weight to, but one of the things that we debated the most 
was whether or not we will permit atheists to serve as witnesses in church discipline cases. So if you have a church court, a church discipline case uh, is brought to the church and the leadership of the church have to try the court case, are we allowed to have an atheist uh, serve as a witness in the case? If they saw some of the actions accused or uh, speak as a character witness or they uh, involved in some sort of way, are they allowed to speak? And there were great arguments on both sides, and I'll talk about this more next week in Sunday school. But the one argument that was very interesting uh, is really and truly, whether we know it or not, our idea of the life to come impacts the way we live our life today. Whether we know it or not, whether it's intentionally in the front of our mind or if it's in the back of our brain, our idea about the life to come in some fashion impacts the way that we live our life today. If you're the classic American that believes in some form of heaven and that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, there's some idea in the classic American non-Christianity that when it comes time to a court setting, I should tell the truth because I want to have a good ending. I don't want to be the bad person that goes to hell. In fact, I want to be better than my neighbors. It's not Christianity in any way, but it's certainly something. Even if you uh, take some other religions, maybe you want to have some idea of karma and improve your standing in the world, but the, the future, the life to come, impacts the life today. Now, for false religions, that's true. It does impact how you live today. But it should be doubly true for Christians. Namely, because uh, our hope is not a false hope. Our understanding of the life to come is not a false understanding. It's not some kind of out-in-the-ether whim or some kind of nonsense that we've made up in a fever dream the last time we had the flu. Our understanding of the life to come is exactly what God has told us, it should be at least, exactly what God has told us in his word. Isaiah chapter 27 is one of those chapters. This is uh, thus far probably the happiest chapter we've had in the book. Uh, This is kind of the ending of uh, chapters 24 through 27, which describe the end of time, space, matter, and energy as we know it. These chapters, 24 through 27, describe uh, the apocalypse, though in kind of different language than in other parts of the scriptures. It describes the end, the end of everything that we know as we know it and moving in to the new creation. 27 particularly, more than the other chapters, goes into what that new creation is like. What, what will the, the new heavens and new earth be like? What, what will it be like to be on the other side? What will it be like? And in many ways, it gives us some very good principles that we could kind of cling to, though perhaps not with all of the detail that we might like. Starts verse 1, first thing we see is the Leviathan show up. In that day, the end day, the final day, the second coming day, the day where time and energy and space and matter are transformed into the new creation, in that day the Lord will draw his sword. And he will draw his sword in totality, 
He will draw his sword in power and strength and might, and he will defeat Leviathan. Okay. Great point, Michael. I'm so encouraged. That impacts my life. Leviathan's dead. I don't even know what Leviathan is. Well, it's a word picture. Leviathan is a term that shows up throughout the scriptures and other parts and places uh, that refers to kind of the big, uh, great monster. Uh, my guess is it's either a dragon or a dinosaur, which if you haven't actually figured out are really the same thing, right? Dragons, probably real, probably didn't really breathe fire, but if you actually look at a dragon and look at some of the pictures of dinosaurs, they're really the same thing. And if you actually haven't finished thinking through this, yes, dinosaurs were on the ark. Yes, dinosaurs lived after the flood. If you really want to go read on this, this is a fun one. You can go read about Angkor Wat. Angkor Wat is the largest um, religious building in the world. It was built in Cambodia in the 1100s, and it has a perfectly carved stegosaurus on it, roughly 700 years before stegosauruses were discovered. That's interesting. How would you draw a stegosaurus if they haven't been discovered yet? Well, simple answer is you'd have to see one. Uh, realistically, what are we looking at here with Leviathan? It's probably some uh, kind of big picture dinosaur, right? These big scary monsters. We see these happen every couple of years in the news where some kid discovers a new dinosaur and when they do, they find a tooth out in the sand that's like this big. And you're like, I don't know what has teeth this big, but I don't ever want to meet it. I don't know what's that big or chomping. I don't ever want to meet it. That's what's being portrayed here is uh, the monster of all monsters, the predator of all predators, the great and evil monster of all, the Leviathan. It's given a couple of additional terms here, the fleeing serpent, the twisting serpent, the dragon that is in the sea. Again, it's a word picture. The greatest of all enemies here, I suspect, being brought out to talk about the devil himself. That when we arrive at the end of time, the day where time changes and energy changes and the matter that we know is done away with and made new, that even the devil himself is destroyed. Now that's something that, I mean, I think we take for granted so often as Christians. We're like, well, I mean, obviously, obviously. But we forget like his significance in the scriptures We forget that he shows up at the very beginning when the entirety of uh, the, the history of mankind is broken. We forget that he's the one that initiates the temptation of Eve and thereby the temptation of Adam. We forget that he's busy every day since, but that he labors most successfully in anonymity. I mean, if you actually think about it, the only real places we see him actually show up in the scriptures at the beginning, the arrival of Jesus, and then at the end. And everything in between, he's busy working constantly to torment and to destroy and to hurt and to distract and to lead astray the people of God. Historically, in the Reformed tradition, we've, we've talked about the three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, one of my, my favorite theologians, William Still, uh, talks about them actually with, we have one great enemy, the devil, who utilizes the world and the flesh to accomplish his purposes. I suspect Still is correct. 
Our great enemy is the devil himself, and his two primary tools that he uses are the world and our flesh to lead us astray, to distract us, to hurt us, to bother us, and to break us. I love to think about this, that kind of realistically when, when they end, when it comes to the end of time and space and energy and matter, when it comes to the end of days, our great enemy is destroyed. Not in part, not in, not in pieces, in totality. Now, this is uh, one of those things that actually, again, kind of has major impact on how you think about the world today. In fact, actually, this is one of the ways that you used to be able to recognize Christians in literature. Because Christians in literature, when they wrote, there was this implicit idea in the back of our minds that we couldn't get away from that the good guys always won. So you could go back through and look at devout you know, authors in the 1300s or in the 1500s or in the 1800s, and at some point the good guys always won because there was always hope because we knew implicitly in our brains that the good guys win in the end. But it's been interesting to see that in the English language and English authors as we've had the rise of nihilism, the hopelessness that comes from materialism, Or we've had the rise of kind of the yin and yang, the balance, the evenly balanced good and evil. We've increasingly seen the arrival of novels where the good guys don't win. We've seen the arrival of an entire genre of kind of fantasy literature, if you read that, where the good guys no longer win anymore. It's too cliche. It's passe for the good guys to win. It has to be some sort of kind of villain that ends up or a tragic figure who ends up kind of miserable in the end. It's formative for us, it should be at least, that our great enemy at the end of time loses entirely. And everything that he touches and everything that's his minion and everything that are all of his ploys and his lies, every one of them will be exposed and destroyed with him. This actually, in some sense, should give us a bit of a freedom when it comes time to think about our legal system and a freedom to think about when others have wronged us. In fact, actually, the entire American legal system was founded on this idea that at the end of time, all villains get what they deserve or Jesus gets it for them. No villain ever gets away unpunished. Either the villain themselves will get punished in the life to come, or Jesus will take their punishment for them. But no villain gets away forever. That's why we don't have to worry about uh, revenge. We don't have to worry about even ultimately justice in this world if we are done wrong, if we are treated unfairly, if people take advantage of us or even ultimately wrong us more seriously than that. Even if they get away with it in this life, they will not in the life to come. It keeps us from being vengeful, petty, preoccupied little creatures. Do you realize this is one of the primary reasons why our current cultural climate has begun to fixate on how we've been wronged and get stuck in that moment? 
Our current kind of cultural moment in time, we have two generations beneath me that have been taught to focus entirely on how they've been wronged and get stuck in that wrong. They live in their pain. They never make it past their pain. They get stuck in their pain. And it's because they can't get into this idea. God's going to destroy all of his enemies at the end. If you've been done wrong, you don't need to worry about it. The Lord's going to take care of it in the end. Now, pursue justice within the, you know, the legal paths that have been presented to you. But at the end of the day, if you can't get it through the court system, if you can't get it through the church court system, move on, friends. The Lord will take care of you. He will protect you. He will defend you. It's something we have to hope for, to look forward to. We have justice and hope ultimately at the end. All right, so the great beast is destroyed. Satan and all of his minions and all of his works and efforts are destroyed in verse one. In verse two, we have a new word picture that's introduced here, not a great dinosaur or great dragon that's slain by uh, the great knight of God, but instead a garden. Oh, interesting. Creation starts with a garden. Creation ends with a garden. Oh, that's so intriguing. The start and the ending, both with the same kind of picture, a pleasant vineyard, a garden, uh, interestingly, that is so delightful that the author, God himself here, verse 2, calls us to sing about it. Now, I'm going to be honest, I like flowers. I like fruit trees and things like that. I've never been so excited about one that I want to sing. I've never been like, whoo, I'm just so excited, I should sing about this garden. But this garden is different. Look at what God kind of explains about this garden that ends time and space, this word picture. A pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. So now whose garden is it? Well, it's not mine, thankfully. It's the Lord's, and he's the one who tends it. He's the one who watches over his garden, and he tends it every moment I water it. Oh, what, a, what a wonderful thing. To think about a garden that God himself plants, but God himself tends it, and he tends it every minute. Now, for some of us, this is kind of the point in the year where the kind of South Carolina growth cycle has kicked in enough that your yard work, it seems like you can't ever get fully far enough ahead of it, right? You got weeds, you pulled them up like three days ago, and they're back, and you're like, how? How? And the crabgrass is everywhere, and you're like, oh, and I want to get rid of that. And your trees need to be trimmed, and the bushes need to be trimmed, and you just trimmed them last week, but they're growing again. And if you put any fertilizer, or if you water your yard at all, oh man, it's, you can't keep up, can you? Here you have the picture of God himself is the one doing, and he's doing the work, and he does the work night and day, and night and day, and night and day, so he's on top of it. Because he's present. Because he's there. Now, ultimately, with this vineyard, he's talking about his people. The holy city is what he's talked about in other places, but he's explaining what his relationship with his people will be like. That he will be with them and he will take care of them day and night and day and night and day. And he'll never leave them or forsake them. I keep it day and night. I love that. Verse four, this one's so intriguing. I have no wrath, he's not angry. There's nothing to be angry about. There's nothing to be frustrated with. 
Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. Now, this is a thing that I don't think any farmer or gardener has ever said since the fall. I wish I weren't so on top of my chores that there was work for me to do. But as it stands, I'm too ahead of the game. There aren't any briars. I've already picked all those up and destroyed them. There aren't any weeds. I've already picked all those up and destroyed them. I'm so ahead of the game. I'm so on top of it. My work is finished. It's finished. That was actually the thing that taught me to hate yard work for a season. Uh, my first summer after college, I came back and uh, got a job as a, at a large church in Charlotte where I was working as the third person down on their landscaping crew, which is not a very noble job, but it was a hardworking one. It was a church that had 100 acres of property, and my job was to be the guy who edged all of the property. I trimmed and edged, and it was amazing because I worked five days a week, and there was enough trimming and edging to do five days a week. And so I would go in Monday morning and work 10 hours of trimming and edging. And Tuesday, 10 hours of trimming and hedging. And uh, Wednesday, 10 hours of trimming and edging. And if we got rain on Thursday, by Friday morning, I was already behind from the edging that had stopped on Monday. And so I spent 13 weeks of the summer literally doing the same loop over and over and over and over and over again, never finishing anything because it's too much. By the time you finished the job, it had to be done again. It was never completed. It was never caught up. It was the most depressing job for me because it was like, I can't check a box that I ever finished anything. They hired me for one box to be checked and it never got checked the entire summer because by the time you got halfway done, you were already behind on the part that you had started. Interestingly, God is talking about here, what is his relationship with his vineyard? What's his relationship with his garden? He's so on top of his care, it's done. There's, there's no like, ah, it's unfinished. There's no frustrations. There's no like, mm, I should handle this tomorrow. It's done. It's finished completely. There's no briars and thorns. There's no weeds. Doesn't, they don't need fertilizer, doesn't need to be watered. He's taking such good care of it, it's absolutely perfect. And I love to think about that, just kind of pause and think about that for the people of God. To think that like when the end time happens, right, when the, the, the second coming of Jesus takes place, when we hit the end, that we're brought about kind of to the fullness of what it means to be human. And all of those frustrations and foibles, all of those sins and struggles, they're all taken away as we become, I mean, don't be too precise with this, but fully human. Now, we're still finite. We still have limitations. That's what it means to be human, right? I mean, understand this. The second coming happens, you're not going to immediately have all knowledge, There's only one person who has all knowledge, and that's God. You're going to spend the rest of time learning because that's what we're going to do. We have to learn. You're not going to be everywhere at once. You're going to have to learn and ask people and visit things and places. We're still going to be human, but it's going to be without the enemies, without the struggles, without the sin, without the temptation. Some of you, When you wake up in the morning 
it is hard to get out of bed because the pain physically that does not go with you into the life to come some of you you wake up in the morning and it's hard to get out of bed because of the pain emotionally and that doesn't go with you either into the life to come some of you your days are filled with tears and grief that will not go with you into the life to come Some of you, your days are filled with temptation and and just struggling so hard not to sin. That does not go with you into the life to come. I love to think about that. Like when, when we enter into the new earth, again, remember, this is good theology here. This is where we will live. We don't live in heaven. That's where God lives. We live on the new earth the new creation that is made for humans to live in and to be fully human. And every day when you wake up, if you need to sleep, I assume you will, I don't know. We know we at least can eat. We may not have to. Jesus did when he was resurrected. Don't know if he had to. We know he did. When you wake up, you're gonna have choices that you can make. You're gonna have a multitude of choices in front of you and none of them will be bad. How fun will that be? Can you imagine that to wake up one morning and be like, I got like 17 things I can choose from and they're all good. I can't wait. It's perfect. Maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'll do that. I'm not sure, but they'll both be good. Looking forward to it. I mean, you think about so many of us, we wake up each day and have choices presented in front of us and sometimes none of them are good. You ever been in that spot where you wake up and you're like, ugh, I don't like any of these choices. Today is just going to be an exercise in picking the less bad. I don't like those days. I love that this place is the place where it's all good. The only thing left is good. It's complete and total. Verse five, there's no enemies left. The protection is, it's comprehensive so that it's been so fully accomplished. There's no one to lay hold of God's people. Let them make peace. There's no one left that's opposed to God. And then, now this is interesting, we have in verse six, again, back into Genesis one and two. You remember when God made the world in Genesis one and two, he made the world perfect. The earth was made perfect but it was wild. You have a garden that's placed in it that was not wild. And he makes two people in his image, one from, a dust, from the dust and one from a rib, man and woman. And he says, you two take this perfect garden and expand it over the entire earth. The entire earth is good, but it's wild. You take the garden and conquer the world. Take dominion over it. Expand it everywhere. I love that verse six, you actually have that idea being brought back here with, in those days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. What does it look like at the end? Well, it looks like what they messed up at the beginning, except better. 
That garden that was supposed to be expanded, that garden of Eden that was supposed to take over the entirety of the world, well, in the new creation, it's accomplished in a way that we don't fully comprehend, don't fully understand, but the fruit of salvation will cover the entirety of the world. I mean, that's fun to think about. The curse, and we sing this in, in Joy to the World, right? Far as the curse is found, it's removed. And if the curse could go there, at the end, the church will go there. So that the entirety of creation is filled with the worship of God. Whether you go to the highest of mountains, the lowest of valleys, the deepest, darkest of forests, the open and beautiful beaches, the whole world will be filled with the salvation of God. Now, this is an element, I think, probably, that many of us don't spend enough time thinking about. We probably spend, <laughs> probably spend an inordinate time thinking about our frustrations. Right? We probably spend too much time thinking about our frustrations, if we're going to be honest. Many of us probably need to kind of cut that time in half or more than that. But we don't actually probably spend enough time thinking about the fact that those frustrations in every part and piece of creation and the created order will be brought underneath the rule and reign of God in the new earth. Our bodies will be brought underneath the rule and reign of God in the new heavens and new earth. I don't understand it. I don't know how, um, you know, what age everybody will be, what, what you know, age condition they'll be. I, I don't know that. The scriptures don't tell us. You know, the children that we've lost that have gone before us that we'll meet in the life to come, I, I don't know if we meet them as adults. I assume that would be the case. It will be very weird for Nikki and I. We have one. To meet them in the life to come and go, well, <laughs> never met you, but I get to now. That'll be fun. But to think about like all of the different parts of our lives that bring about frustrations. I mean, to think about like the frustrations in, in relationship where one party wrongs the other or the consequences of Babel where God cursed communication to make it incoherent and misunderstanding. To think about the grief of loss some of you, that's what today is. It's a day of grief, a day of sadness. To think about the ravages of age. Maybe we're not done yet. We have more work that we want to do, more that we want to accomplish. Uh, some of us, it would be the frustrations of, of the struggles to learn and to understand all of those things being brought underneath the power of God and the entirety of the world filled with the fruit of salvation. I mean, to think about, like, I, I mean, this is probably a, a, a dumb illustration, but it's one that fits in my head. The idea, and again, this is a silly illustration here for what it is, a silly illustration but the idea of going to the airport and hopping on a plane and flying somewhere in the world and landing in a place that is completely governed by the church so that people who don't look like me 
who don't speak the same language as me, who might not have the same type of clothing as me, who live in a different part of the world from me, but are my family and we're 100% united with no frustrations, no foibles, no sin, no division, one body governed by one Christ with one faith and one baptism. I mean, how fun would that be? I would love to be like the, I'd love to travel the entire of the world, wouldn't it? Fly to the deepest, darkest places of the jungle? I'd love to see that. How cool would that be to see a jungle where the snakes are in obedience to the Lord? I'm cool on that, particularly if the spiders are as well. That'd be great. Go to the highest of mountains to see God's reign from the top of the greatest of peaks, to look down on the clouds and see the reign of God below us, to find a way to get to the bottom of the sea, to find the hideous creatures that God has made, and to observe their heinous, awful faces, but how they praise the Lord. To rejoice in the silly creatures that God has made. I saw one this week that it's a a Brazilian frog. (laughs) This is the weirdest thing God made, seriously. It's a frog that has legs that are equipped to jump, but doesn't have an inner ear to accomplish balance. So they jump and then just fling themselves because they can't land. They hit and bounce and roll. It's fantastic to watch. They remind me of Job where God said he made the ostrich just to make himself laugh, right? What a ridiculous creature. And God made him to make him laugh. What a beautiful portrait of a created order. And and friends, this should absolutely define how we think about the world today. It It should shape it in so many ways. One, We must not ever, ever confuse this life with the life to come. I'm going to be candid with you, and this might hurt your feelings a little bit. A lot of the frustrations that you experience on a daily basis is because you have confused this life with the life to come. You have confused this life, which is under multiple curses. God cursed the entirety of creation in Genesis 3. He cursed the entirety of creation uh, at the flood. He cursed the entirety of creation at Babel. Three curses at least that we know of. Yes, you should expect this world to stink a substantial portion of the time because God does not make mistakes. And I suspect he probably doesn't make mistakes when he curses things either. Three curses, he did a really good job. You should expect it. It shouldn't surprise you. It shouldn't rattle you. It shouldn't, in some sense, even fully, completely upset you because you know this is the world I live in, but I get that in the future. It should decrease our our frustration. It should, in some sense, even decrease some of our anxiety. This is the world I live in now. It's broken. It's destroyed. It's destroyed. Now, it's not entirely destroyed, but it's broken. Secondly, it should give us hope always. There should be no time and space where a Christian does not have hope because at the end of the day, I will win because Jesus does. At the end of the day, I pass through the veil of tears or the valley of Baca. I pass to the other side and I win. And so do you. So we are to be those that have hope and never lose it. 
to know that that life is the real life. This is just preparation. And some of you, you like live music. I used to love going all the time and it was always fun when you'd go to see a band that you knew was gonna be a great band and you'd get there at the beginning of the concert, you sit down and the opening act would come out and they were terrible, right, dreadful. Not on pitch, couldn't play their instruments, singing terrible songs, they're awful. You're like, man, I wanna leave, this is dreadful. But if you could stick it through the opening act, if you could make it through that first band being dreadful, you got the great band afterwards. Friends, there's an element, that's really what our our task here is. The opening act for human existence is pretty rotten a lot of times. Laboring under the curse day after day after day after day. You stick it out though. You stick it out, you make it. (laughs) What do you get? Joy. Peace. Gladness. Well, very quickly, the chapter's not done. We ask the question, if you're kind of thinking logically, that sounds like a really great deal. I would like that. I don't like the opening act. This 80 years is really hard. How do I get joy and gladness for eternity? How do I get this perfect vineyard of God for all eternity? How do I get that? Because that's what I want. How do I get that? Well, Lord tells us in the rest of the chapter, I'm going to go very quickly through them. Four things. Verses seven and eight. We get it by God working. It's not humans that can accomplish that. No human, no man, no non-divine person is strong enough to accomplish a victory that total because we are inside the created order and we need someone outside the created order. Verses seven, well, verse seven is just a really fun word play. Uh, it's the word strike three times and then the word kill three times so that it's changing subjects and objects to be a neat little word, word play. Uh, has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Right, good little word game. Has the Lord struck down his enemies yet, those that hurt his people? Those that struck Israel, has the Lord struck them down yet? Well, not yet. Have they been slain, his enemies, as they were slaying the people of God? Not, not yet. But the Lord's going to show up. He's going to draw his sword. He's going to destroy all of his enemies. It's not done yet, but verse eight, it will happen. Measure by measure, it will happen. He removed them with his fierce breath on the day of the Easter. He's done it. God's going to be the one who's going to be the one at work. He's going to make sure that it happens. God will do it. So your hope is not in politics. Please don't hope in the government. They're, they're a mess. Our hope is not in entertainment. Please don't hope in your entertainers. They're a mess. Our hope is not in our family. Please don't hope in your family. They are a mess. Please don't hope in your spouse. They're a mess. Don't hope in your own intelligence. It's a mess. The Lord can take it away. Do not hope in anything save God himself. But verse 9, I love this. Uh, 7 and 8 explain how God is going to work. What, what does that mean? Verse 9 explains how he's going to work. This is what it's going to be, friends. Therefore, by this... 
The guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. Our God will bring atonement. And his atonement will be so full, so comprehensive, and so entire and total that the consequences will be all of the stones of the altars will be crushed to pieces like dust. There will be no Asherim, false gods, left. No incense altars, that would be to the Baals left. God will atone for his people so comprehensively. There will be no atonement left. There there will be no atonement lacking. It it will be 100% exactly full and right and total. And as a result, even the false gods will be done away with. This is presented, obviously, as foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus This is in its New Testament form. If you wanted to kind of translate this into New Testament language, it would be Jesus on the cross saying, it is finished. What's lacking in the atonement? There's none. What's lacking in the payment for sin? There's nothing lacking. Christ has paid it all and God did it. What do you need in order to get this great life to come? You just need Jesus. Because he's already done it all. You need Jesus. And how do we get that? Well, how do we get Jesus? Verses 12 and 13, interestingly, kind of take up a wonderful Old Testament idea. One that probably doesn't resonate with us that well, but one that is beautiful for them. In that day, from the river Euphrates, I love this, to the brook of Egypt. What a slam on Egypt. To call the Nile a brook. It's just a little brook. The Lord will thresh out the grain and you, people of God, will be gathered to him one by one. God God will go and get his people from all over the world. He will go and collect his people and and bring them to himself. And in fact, verse 13, that day a great trumpet will be blown. Oh, interesting, that's taken up in the New Testament as the trump will sound as Jesus descends in the last day. What will happen? Those who were lost will be found. And in fact, actually, people from all over the world will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Now, again, that's not an ultimate, like, literal fulfillment. That would be missing the point. The point that he's talking about is the people of God will be gathered in from every tribe and tongue, every nation, and God himself will bring them in. So it's interesting. How do I get that good life to come? How do I, how do I get the happy ending for all time? Well, the answer is simple. You need Jesus. How do I get Jesus? <laughs> well, the Lord does that. He's the one who does it. All you need to do is receive his gift that he gives. Believe and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's it. How sweet and how simple. Now, friends, this is the idea that needs to shape our minds every day. That as we go about driving in traffic, as we go about laboring in inane jobs, as we deal with our neighbors sometimes, as we deal with those around us, as we deal with the frustrations and difficulties of our lives, to know that our God, even now, 
is bringing about that perfect life to come. And we currently are in the great preparation. That's really what we're doing is being prepared as we practice for the life to come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this great vision of your work. Would you give us hearts to believe it and eyes to see it, even though it's not yet made. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.